We're talking about Christmas, but it's real close. We're we're almost there. We're almost there, and uh, the holiday season is. I mean, we're in the middle of it, and or towards the end of it. Can you hear that? (laughs) (laughs) We have a little ASMR happening with the dog and the the smacking. Okay, we can't hear it. For those that want to know, maybe we're gonna have more. Uh, social media content about our our podcasting, but there are two dogs around us, and one of them decided to smack for a, a while. Sleepy, you know, she's a little sleepy. Get the sleepy noises. Jen has given the couch to the tiny dog and is sitting on the floor. Yeah, oh, Alex just really going for it. Anyhow, today's panel is the camera's eye presented by Panavision, and I'm actually very excited about this. I don't mean to say actually because for a long time. You know, the festival is so much more than actors and writers and producers and directors, which we love mm-hmm. and is the heartbeat of the festival. But we have our casting panels and music supervising and we want to do production design and sort of the breakdown with all the department heads. And I think DPs are just something that we're really fascinated with and their relationship with directors and showrunners, and I'm very grateful that this year Panavision came on board to help us have this panel. Mm-hmm. We, because it was the first time, we do have a long list of DPs and directors we want to get to the festival. But this year we had uh, a pair of DPs, Todd McMullen, who we have actually known for years, based in Austin, and done amazing things like Friday Night Lights and The Leftovers. But also had Abe Martinez, who's the DP of Cobra Kai and Lincoln Lawyer, which is a show I love. That's really good. It's It's a really good show, guys, if you didn't know Lincoln Lawyer. But to have the two of them. So our our dream is to build on this panel where you have DPs and directors Mm -hmm. working together on how they kind of create the look of a show as, as a partners. But this year we had these two DPs just talking about they both work with Panavision of course mm-hmm. um but talking about their work which crosses over and is singular amongst itself which was very exciting yeah and they got to get pretty in depth about like how they this was sort of like in a fun way like the casting this year's casting panel i feel like they also kind of all came from these like they also had these odd origin stories of mm-hmm. like feels kind of out of left field like <laughs> how did you end up here yeah but yeah, they they both got to talk pretty in depth about how they got into this particular line of work and how their uh, positions have sort of evolved from show to show over the years, um, which I thought was really cool. Yeah, I think that it's you could have a lot of questions for DPs, and I think that they touch on a few of them of like what it's like establishing the show versus coming on later, or I think about shows that are directed by the same person for the whole season versus yeah. you may be the same DP or one of two DPs across the season, but there's five directors for you. And like how you, it's one of the more interesting things about TV for me. And I know that's changed a lot in the last few years to allow for more film like television where like one person writes it all or one person directs it all. But historically and what still exists is a season of television written by different people, directed by different people. So like, 
what is the through line. Usually that is a showrunner creator Mm -hmm. concept, but like what, what's setting the tone for that show is and what then is taken past you. So like if you were the first season of a show, but not the second, but you established the look of it. Yeah. How interesting that is. And I think they get to touch on that a little bit. Yeah. And I, I will be honest. I did not really know how much research went into the like pre-production process for them. And just in terms of like connecting, like taking the scripts that they're given Mm -hmm. and sort of figuring out like how their point of view fits into Mm -hmm. the literal like look of the show. Yeah. Um, So that was just really fascinating to hear them talk about. I mean, locate. They're part of location scouting and yeah. like how you're getting in and I'm building sure the sets pretty, and yeah. all that. Like it's it's yeah. wild. Like how much it is actually. I mean, I'm not going to go too deep into this because I'm not educated enough. But it's wild to me that they aren't in the DGA because mm. as directors of photography and hearing them talk about their job and like the word directors and their title, like it makes total sense to me that they would be mm-hmm. that would be their union. But they're I believe they're IATSE. Like they're the the group of people that are part of a, a more amorphous union. Uh-huh. But like I, it totally would make sense for them to be a part of the DGA to me based on what their job is and how closely they work with the directors and things like that. It's just the amount of responsibility they wild. have is right. a lot. Yep. Well, I will say you should listen to this conversation and then look up their shows. Cause like, Abe, for example, like Cobra Kai is so different from Lincoln Lawyer. Mm -hmm. And that's really fascinating to look at from a palette perspective. Like Lincoln Lawyer in a lot of ways is like a love letter, love letter to Los Angeles. Like it really is beautifully shot. But obviously Cobra Kai is a comedy, but also beautifully shot, but different. And then Todd, I mean, one of my favorite shows of all time is The Leftovers. Yeah, it's just beautiful. I really think I'm going to do a rewatch soon. Yeah. Gotta get in the right headspace, but I'm really <laughs> excited about it. But like the leftovers versus Friday Night Lights versus like Dirty John or The Sun, which is very period, mm-hmm. it would be fun to watch their different work and like see what similarities and differences there are. But there's they cover a lot of really great TV. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but with that, we're gonna let them, Todd McMullen and Abe Martinez, talk with our favorite craft moderator. Uh, Ben Travers of IndieWire. Enjoy. Uh, Thank you, Bo. Uh, We just had a fun conversation about how it's day four, and I'm very tired, so that went, that was perfect. Perfect introduction to to get me hyped. Uh, Thanks, everybody, for coming out. How are you feeling? How was the fest? Good. Good. All right. Well, we're gonna we're gonna get right to it because we've got great panelists and great conversation. Uh, first and foremost, we've got Todd McMullen, the director of photography. You might know him from a few shows. Uh, I believe he did Waco, Waco: The Aftermath, a little show called The Leftovers, and I don't know. Have you guys heard of Friday Night Lights? <laughs> Come on up here, Todd. And then, of course, we've got Abe Martinez, also director of photography. He's on a little show called Cobra Kai that I bet you guys have seen, uh, as well as 61st Street and the Shy. Abe, come on up here. Let's get, let's get started. Hello. All right, works. Hello. Uh, all right, guys, just to, uh, to try to frame this a little bit, I wanted to start way back at the very beginning. Um, what was kind of your 
early experience for getting in? Like, what, what did you do for training for your first job? Like, how did you kind of break in and get that first gig that led you to where you are now? Abe, you got the tie on. You go first. Yes. Well, I got the tie on because maybe I would have a coffee stain and I could just do this. <laughs> little, little movie tricks. Um, uh, I'm actually from Texas. I was from San Antonio, which I was shocked to see that Primo was based uh, in San Antonio. I was like, I never see shows where I'm from. It's fascinating. <laughs> um, no, I, I was I, uh, born in San Antonio, lived in Houston, uh, went to school in Dallas, and then went to North Texas. We owned some land at Lake Travis. I remember as a kid, like, Oh, a bunch of dirt. What is going on? This Lake Travis place. Uh, but I went to North Texas, and after North Texas, uh, I moved to New York. And uh, right away, I just I took my last test, which was Western Cinema. And I took it, jumped it, packed up a U-Haul, moved to Manhattan, and from there, I got a job working in a rental house. Uh, you know, sponsored by Panavision, and um, just kind of went the way of the pan, uh, rental house experience. And when you work at a rental house, you meet different people, freelancers. Uh, and I got so very lucky because in 1996, there was no IMDb or no cell phone to look up like who people are. Like literally I took a notepad and wrote down everyone's name like Hernan Antano or like write down everyone's names and like they like this piece of equipment. And, that, and I just was like, and I still like go crazy on notes as we talk about director and DP process. I'm like a note guy. But it, to make a long story short, I met the DP from uh, Somebody I was working with in New York was like, hey, kid, buddy, up to that guy. He shot Saturday Night Fever. And it was like, he did. And I just kind of inched up and said, uh, Mr. Boda, hello. And I still had my Texas side of politeness and wasn't so rough in New York City. Uh, and next thing you know, he took me off the, the rental house floor and I started working with him on four pictures. And then from there, I ended up working on a Michael Mann movie and working with uh, Bob Ellswit uh, and Fast and Furious, and it just kept going on movies, and that's kind of the genesis of uh, my starting place. But that's so yes, good. Texas, all the way through, yeah. Right. Uh, I basically, way back when, I was working for a communications company in Sacramento, and I had learned Aeroflex was having a program through UCLA Extension where you could work with a 35-millimeter camera and at that time, I really wanted to just to load film. So I would drive on Fridays from Sacramento to LA, which was like four hours one way, just to go to a class that started, I think, at six and ended at nine. And they'd bring out the cameras, you get to load everything. And um, then I'd drive back to Sacramento at the same time, so because I was going to school then. So it was just going back and forth. And finally, I just fell in love with that whole process of dealing with the film cameras. And then I uh, decided to go to, to L.A., and uh, I just went to Panavision uh, in Woodland Hills, and I just bugged the hell out of everybody. And at that time, there weren't obviously many people in the business at that time. So I uh, just started making friends and started doing, coming on shows uh, to do movies. And then I got a great break. Uh, I got a call from one of the guys I met there. He says, hey, we're doing, we need a B camera on this show, Casino, in Vegas. And we need somebody for seven days. They said, seven days? I'm young. I'm, I'm there, man. So it turns out I go there, and I was there for 110 days. So it was like, but I was having the time of my life. I was staying in a hotel that was a little bit suspect. It was very noisy at night. But we were shooting at night, which is great. So uh, it worked out great, and that's kind of how it got me into where I'm at now and just kept networking and, and loving what I did. You know, I never gave up on how much I loved it. So 
I guess in those early days, like when you're when you're like when you're meeting people and you're trying to you know tell them like, hey, hey, I'm I'm good at this. I'm excited to do it. What what are you showing them? Like, what are kind of the conversations like that early on where you're you know you're trying to form a bond, you're trying to connect with people, you're trying to you know both convince them that you can do the job and that you know you're somebody who's good to work with. What 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 is that kind of relationship building like? I guess. Well, in my case, I just was quiet. I knew I had to be a witness on big shows and just kind of do my job, not ask too many questions, but be there for everything. Just kind of keep a distance, but know what's going on. Try to be ahead of the step of what I need, if I need a new batteries, new mags, whatever, but doing it without, you know, creating a scene or being too, you know, too into it, you know. I guess it very much the same. Uh, I think we came up with some old school, older school people that were working in the 70s and 60s. And uh, when I started, it was like, you just be quiet. And, and I didn't even sit down. I was loading mags and loader. I never sat down. Uh, and I just listen. And I still say, like even now, that's the biggest skill set is even when I'm with the director uh, in locations or with actors or with watching directors. Um, De dealing with actors and everything, I'm just listening, and that's something that is still, I think, still even now I'm working on. But just coming through is constantly listening because a lot of what I feel like what we do in photography is to serve and magnify stories, and the best way to serve is to listen. And I think that's the biggest skill set, really. That's great, and that, that leads perfectly into what um, I think the, the, the core of this panel is about, which is just trying to you know, create the images that really connect with an audience, especially, you know, nowadays where it's, where it's changing a lot, but also building those relationships and, you know, how you work with people on set. So when you're, when you're starting a new show, when, you're, when you've been hired to DP and, you know, you, you come in, what are those conversations like about, you know, the visual language of the show? What are you saying to the director? How do you kind of approach them? Who are you talking to? Like, is it just the director? Is it like producers, showrunners? Like, what are those early initial conversations like? And what do you use to try to set the example for like, you know, this is what I'm thinking of, this is what we could do. And again, like if it is listening, like if it is, you know, just getting the feedback, what kind of stuff is, is being told to you and how do you process that? Well, that's great. I think the beautiful, one of the reasons why I think we all pick this is because um, we get to tell many different types of stories and you really like one day I'm in a Western, the next show could be sci-fi and I really liked that as a kid. I think that's where my imagination goes. Like my imagination's constantly going. And a lot of the time to feed the artist side of me happens very front loaded when I get a project. So I shot National Treasure for Disney Plus. And um, I just remember hearing another. <laughs> I, love, I love the show. I'm so sad when you get season two. Um, but I can do, I think every show is different. I shot Queen of the South, I've, I've shot in other shows. And, you know, for, for that was like a woman, you know, woman uh, hero type, uh, template, but that's come up by herself into an empire. So for that, I use my mom, and that's how I try to pack it in because relationship is the strongest and it comes through your work. So for National Treasure, it was interesting because in the very beginning, it prepped the look. I knew one thing coming in that I've always had in my hip pocket. I'm not going to make Mexico have this yellow hue. I was, like, <laughs> I was like, number one, I would like get grief forever. So immediately I started immersing myself into history. I started looking into the muralists like Diego Rivera. So I really come in strong with art when I have no one to impede that process after getting the script and talking to the showrunners and hearing where they want to go. Uh, but this one I really went deep dive because I love the actor process. 
uh, in terms of like their backstory. And I literally paid Ancestry.com to take my ancestry and went all the way through Mexico to 1705. And, uh, and just to hear the journey and the progress through the whole Texas chain through Mexico, and they're like, we got you down to 1705. We can go to Spain if you want to pay more money. I'm just like, wait, I have to wait for season two, maybe. <laughs> but in that, I did a lot of research. From, I went down to Mexico City, and like, I just started studying muralists. I'm up for another sh uh, movie, like a boxing project. And I really just started immersing myself into the show. Um, so I just did another sh uh, show called Obliterate for Netflix, which is kind of like a true lies spectacle action. So basically the whole time I'm on the show, I'm just watching like Die Hard and True Lies and like I'm just constantly, because once we get to set, it's like you're managing the day and you're doing a lot of scheduling and it's, it's not a lot of photography. It's like, it is a ton of photography, but it's also a lot of management to run to run the day's work. So really, I do a lot of art. It can be like one painting. I had uh, Monica Raymond, she's an actress, and she, it was like, I just met her, and next thing you know, she gives me like this painting, and it was like this beautiful um, uh, indigenous woman with the womb and the village coming out. I was like, oh my gosh, I love these colors. And I'm gonna like, yeah, and I ran with that. So it can be anything, really, for starting the look. It can start with the showrunner, it can start with the producing director, it can just start, uh, production design, but I think it's a lot of very collaborative process, truly. Yeah, I think it goes with who is doing what, and uh, on your point, you may have a really strong showrunner who's the director, and you know they also maybe wrote this, so when they write it, they have these certain things in their head, how they want to do it, and so you come to them with, you know, I, I try to get their kind of idea first, because I don't want to throw everything out right away, and you know they go, oh no, that's not what I want to do, you're not the right person, so I kind of feel it out, but um, it also depends on if you're coming onto a show that's already established with a look or you're doing a new show like a pilot. Um, I've been fortunate to do a lot of pilots and I've had a bit of freedom with directors who may not be as visual to kind of find a, a nice look and, and to, to take it someplace. But then, um, you know, you get on with other people that are stronger, so you just kind of go with their thing. But I, it depends if it's a pilot. If a pilot, you can go crazy. And if it's a show that's already established, I think you can take a look that's got flashbacks and certain scenes that you can play with. But for the most part, you know, it's gonna be kind of an established look. Um, I did one pilot and we spent days and days with this director and he, we went through everything from, from Casablanca to, you know, every show you could possibly imagine that was beautiful. And then the first day on the set is, oh, we can't do that, we gotta get a close up. You know, it was like you spent all that time and it just goes out the window because a producer's back there going, no, you, we, don't, we don't use wide shots. You know, we don't do that. So you spend all that time, you're like, ah, oh, shoot, well, we tried. But um, yeah, I think you just try to, as Abe said, you pull from specific things that really appeal to you and images that convey emotion, you know, and, uh, and framing that's not so, you know, standard where you go, oh, wide shot, medium shot, close up, over, over. And that's such a formula these days. You try to break out of that because everybody's used to it, but people are really afraid, especially new directors are afraid to not deviate from that. You know, you may go, well, let's just do this in one and we can move it around and it goes into the close. Oh, I don't know if we can do that, you know? So it's, it depends on the show and how established it is in my experience. Well, I wanted to ask, like you, you mentioned that, you know, you work with directors who, you know, either have like a strong, you know, visual component to their, to their repertoire or people who maybe are a little less so. 
when you're like stepping into those projects, is that something that you try to find out before you meet with the directors? Do you know how to talk to them? Like, do you worry about overwhelming them with information or, or, you know, being too technical with them? Like, how do you want to start that relationship? Because it is like, that is important. Like you want to have a good bond with the director, right? Like you want to have like kind of that, be able to talk to them and, and, you know, listen. Absolutely. And I think you want them to get on your side that they know you're going to go in the trenches with them no matter what happens. So it's a great question because some, you, sometimes you just don't know. You know, I had a director I didn't want to give too much out, and then he was kind of getting frustrated. Finally, I mentioned something. He goes, that's what I want to hear. You know, but I didn't really know that because he kind of had a, he was an actor. He had a strong personality. So, yeah, it's a fine line just to, you know, to, to gauge that. Yeah, same on listening, just to have that still be a jump point. Um, I, try to, I try to do a lot of listening to see what kind of their superpower is. So if it's an actor... I kind of know where where they're coming from, and you know it's also good to know it's because I'm just super crazy camera, like I love it so much nonstop, <laughs> and um, so it's like the camera for me is like just second nature. But there's a lot of other things that I'm still trying to build on my weaknesses. So I just try to be, you know, immediately you have to like build trust, and and a lot it, it's a slow, trust is like a very slow process. And when you're collaborating with your director, it's like a very close relationship. Uh, especially when you have your AD and you're trying to make the day. So I really just try to have uh, some time so we can talk and just share ideas and hear where they're coming from. But really, I'm looking forward to see what their strengths are so I know to lean into that. Uh, so I've had much success when I work with an actor who's directing and just kind of see, like, okay, I'm seeing a, a, a common thing with different actors that are directing or somebody that comes from editorial or, and someone from editorial at times could be on set and like, this is what I need for the edit to the actor. I'm like, you know, don't say that. <laughs> so, so, so I try to feather that and make a very safe place, especially now with so many emerging directors that are new, um, and especially with the philosophy of really serving the director. It's like I really want to magnify people's voices. And like on The Shy, like I didn't, I, I didn't live in Chicago. Um, I, I am Latino and uh, teenage pregnancy is a thing and that's a thing in my community and there's certain common ground that we have and I feel like to have a multicultural cr crew is very healthy and great because in order to tell that story, like if you have everyone from Chicago tell a story, you're not really, uh, like who are you storytelling to? Storytelling to is about sharing this uh, idea, like, you know, breakfast tacos. Like, no, not everyone knows about breakfast tacos. And I'm, I'm here and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm home. It's like, where's my dad? He put him in foil. So it's like, uh, so it's like this thing that just kind of grounds you. And I feel like um, that's how I, my approach is to see kind of what their background is. And nowadays it's easier with IMDb to do some research or you can ask, like, you know, we work with probably the same directors many times, but the, the relationship is so, so great and collaborate. It's like, that. I also shoot documentaries, but collaborating, there's nothing like collaborating. And it's just, it just has such a great achievement when you watch the episode and you see it air. And, um, but yeah, I think the biggest thing is for me is to find their, 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 what their strengths are. Well, so I, I did a panel the other day with, with some of the writers and like the topic of the panel was basically that, you know, the, the writer's job doesn't end with the writing, like with the page, like they're not just always sitting at a computer and, and, you know, one of the things that they wanted to emphasize was that, you know, it's important that they go to the sets. It's important that they're able to kind of communicate their vision. And like, again, it's a collaborative process and everybody's working together. So to start with, I wanted to ask just like, again, the director relationship is obviously very important for you guys, but who else is it like, are you talking to everybody? Like how, like how much, you know, when you're on set, are you like, you know, spending your energy to connect with a lot of people and how important it is for you to have those relationships with, 
other you know professionals on the set like what what is that dynamic for you i guess yeah i mean obviously production designer because if he's building a set for you and you want him to build a removable wall or a, a camera port you've got to communicate that so they can get it in the build early uh costumes so they don't come with some crazy costume you know that you look at and go wow that's weird you know and it just doesn't it just doesn't translate um you know camera crew you hey we need to get a crane which one should we get I mean, it's everybody. And once you realize, once you, you know, for myself, when I get on set, somebody wants to pass some information on to us that's big, I get all my team around me because I want one person to say it to everybody. I don't want them to come to me and then I got to spread it all out because that's just a waste of time. And I may, you know, not interpret it correctly. So I, everybody comes there and it gets, here's, you know, we got this big day, we're doing car work, and so I get everybody involved. So everybody knows what their job is to do, and then I, you know, I don't have to share it with them, uh, including camera operators, sometimes craft service if we need, you know, water or drinks in the car or whatever. But, you know, I, I'm getting the point is everybody's got to be involved. Uh, production designer for sure, costume designer. Um, and then, you know, going back to the writers thing, that's very interesting because we've had writers come on set and I think they deserve to be there for sure. Uh, and there's been some really funny moments where we've had to do a lot of car work. Car work's the worst for everybody, because if you do it practical, you get on an insert car, the car driver comes out and goes, I only want six people on here. So then you gotta start cutting out everybody. And who's the first person that gets cut out? The writer. You know, so then they're like, oh man, I wanted to go. So I think the point is, you hopefully see how tough it is for these writers when they write this stuff, that when they go write it again, maybe they won't write that scene in a car. You know, especially night car stuff. Because I've seen them sit out there and go, oh, this is really boring, you know, and I'm not gonna write this again. You know, because it just takes forever. And so anyway, that, it's, it's pretty in interesting. But uh, yeah, it's a collaboration, I think, with everybody. Yeah, I love that. I love that observation. It's like, it's like if the writer sees how boring it is to actually shoot this and it's not rewarding for anybody, maybe they just won't do it. Then maybe we won't have to do it again. Well, and I've heard him say, God, this was a bad idea on my part. You know, I've I literally heard him say that for scenes yeah. that they're like, I could have shot, I could have written this somewhere else. It's pretty funny. Yeah, sorry. Uh, sorry. yeah, I think you did a great job, like, putting the structure, you know, to the execution. I'll go the opposite direction for the writers because uh, just give them mad, crazy love. Writers to me, okay, so the collaborative process is great with directors, but they're guest directors. To me, my tight knit is with the showrunner and the vision of their show. So I love writers. Like for me, a lens is just a lens. But once I get the writing, it's like gasoline into the lens. It's my emotion. So I really have to work on a project that I love. Because once I, once, once I love the project, you have me like 24 hours. It doesn't matter. Like, the music, I'm like falling in love and I'm like looking at colors and like, and that all comes from the writing because the writing is what gets really deep in you. And um, so I, I literally will just love the material. Like I just can't wait to get the material. And so far I feel like very lucky, like everything I've worked on I love. Like Cobra Kai is, like you wouldn't think like, Cobra Kai is a show that I cried on when, when they met John, you know, Johnny Lawrence and the two guys came in and it was season one and I felt like a tear go down my eye. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm an eighth grader again. <laughs> and it was like, it just blew me away. And I still, like right now, my hairs are in goosebumps on my arm. I really, really felt like I haven't grown past the eighth grade. I really feel like my, 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 I stunt my growth. Um, but I fall in love with the writing. And so much like 
how that information goes through. That's, that's the inf information that he's, he's conveying is that we have to tell the team. This is because a lot of times you do get close to your showrunner and you, the conversation is between us two. So we have to figure out how to execute this. And, and, and some of it's, you know, sensitivity stuff that has to do with a, a scene or a specific actor or, or different politics that take place on set. But I absolutely adore writers. I love them. I, you know, although they have many notes at times from the village uh, that could seem to slow the process down, but I value it because it's making us more dimensional. And a, a, writers put a lot of thought into it. And they really, really think this through. But when they see what's happening on set, I think it will offer more efficiency on the set as well. And, and that does affect the line item. So you're going to actually save money. Um, and you're right. They don't, you know, it's like nighttime and all these different scenes. You can really tighten that up. But it comes from the typewriter. And I'm the person, as I mentioned before, I really try to serve the script. So I will shoot it the way the writer wants it. And I'll try my hardest. I wouldn't be the one to change maybe change some locations and whatnot, but I really try to serve the story the best I can or add to it and just take certain lines. I'm like, oh my gosh, I love this line and really carry it through. Because as, 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 as people who shoot the show, we're the ones that bridge the gap with every director. And we're here also to fill in the gap for the tone to the incoming director that comes in that you're prepping with. Uh, or if you're doing every episode, it's very, very tough. But sometimes you're the consistent line through to help out and aid uh, the story that you're driving for the whole seasonal arc, not just the episode. Yeah, I wanted to ask about that um, because, again, like there, there are, like in television, there's so many moving parts. And, you know, each episode is kind of, it can be its own thing, but also it just depends on the project and, and you know who's in charge and, and what's going on. Um, so what's, how does it change for you, I guess, when you're either, like when you're, like we've talked a lot about starting with a pilot and starting from the beginning. How does it change in terms of your approach and you know what you're studying and what you're prepping and what you're offering to the director or what you're communicating with them when you do come in after they've already started the series? Like if you're coming into you know episode six or you're coming into season two or you're coming into you know just later on in the project, how does that kind of shift your approach in terms of you know building those relationships and also what you want to offer the the people that you're working with? Yeah, I think uh, from my point of view, I'll speak with the writers and the showrunners, say, hey, this is, you know, is there anything you want to start changing or any direction you want to start going? Uh, any way we can tell the story differently with some of these characters and get that input. And, you know, if they say, yeah, we'd like to maybe not do as much coverage or maybe a little darker here or, you know, lighter here or whatever, then we'll kind of find that path and do that. Uh, and if not, I just, you know, I mean, realistically for me, you, you could go into... Uh, uh, a scene and it's you see what you got and you know it's just going to be that way you know there's not much you can really maybe the way you cover it maybe a little bit of the lighting but the point is you got to shoot that scene in a certain amount of time and you can't overthink it so a lot of that time comes up and you just want to get those out for the bigger more interesting scenes that you have in the script later you know where you can put some more time into that so um, that's how I just kind of ask and see where they want to go with it and if not we just keep keep going through the same, uh, you know, same look. I, I feel like I'm in, uh, yeah, I feel like my whole life, uh, maybe many in this room too, is that I'm in a place of transition. So I was like, I remember, here's a typewriter and you're typing, and then here's a computer, and then it's like, here's a pager, here's a cell phone, here's film, here's digital. Thomas like, Guide. Yeah, Thomas Guide, running off maps. <laughs> and. It's, it's fascinating because I feel like this time that we're in, it's very much in transition. And, uh, you know, 
So like, so going from season one to season two on The Shy, because I worked uh, additional photography on The Shy season one, but then it was, uh, then we had a black showrunner and she hired me. And um, I guess I feel like so sensitive on that, but the thing was like, we, we were having a conversation like the season one, uh, there's a thing like black poverty or poverty, poverty, and it happens in Latino storytelling as well. Because it's like, oh, this looks, it's like, this looks all dirty. Why is this house all dirty? It's like, it's supposed to look gritty. I'm like, no, gritty, dirty, what? And I'm just like, I don't see neighborhoods like this, really, and I'm, you know. So culturally, what we did on, on Shy Season 2 is kind of give it a little, like, a little uplift mm. and not really dwell on the poverty side, but the spirit of, of the situation. Uh, because I still feel like you as artists and storytellers, I think not only to serve is to see, uh, also to do this with character work, is to see what people's gifts are. And a lot, of your, a lot of times your gift is displaced, you know? So if you're in a neighborhood where your dad's not around and someone sees that you have charisma and you could sell, like, okay, well, you, you, the, the, the street will nurture that gift. So like Teresa Mendoza from Queen of the South was smart and a money changer. And then next thing you know, like the cartel takes advantage of that. So that's our story. So every character, like from National Treasure to everything I ever shoot, it's, it's to see uh, what their gift is and how it was taken from them. So on The Shy, I, I remapped everything. I talked to the showrunner. I, I brought in more light into the house. I didn't want to feel disparity. It's much like that yellow filter on Mexico. Just I really wanted to put more layers and more dimension into the Chicago South Side. Uh, and then really wanted to, you know, I was getting my hair cut. You know, I've even, I'll get braids. I'll do whatever it takes to like really <laughs> lean into it. Um, and just really listen, listen, listen. And the listening is not only on set, it's offset. Because we're trying, a lot of times we have a message in there in, in terms of where we want to go in the story and what was uh, significant. And, a lot, a lot, and that was about the different generations of men in the South Side. And that was our starting place. And uh, I wanted to see how those different homes looked. So we added more color. We just, so, so sometimes from different seasons, you're able to change the show. And it, it does take place in the beginning. It's like, what did you like? What worked? What didn't work? And we can evolve uh, that look. So I think television is fun that way because you can be like, oh my gosh, we're going to go do, you know, go to a different country on this episode. And there you can play. You can make it look however you want. So for, for me, um, I try to keep things very simple, as we mentioned. What is the simple idea that you can apply? And serving and finding out what people's gifts are and also with the character, because it's just human condition and, and connection, really. That's, yeah, that's great. And I mean, that's, that's also such a fundamental aspect of TV that it continues to grow and that you kind of learn from what you're doing as you go along with it. And that's such a great example with The Shy, especially because I feel like that's something that even, you know, kind of came across in the marketing materials when they were trying to promote seasons two and three, like that they were trying to be more colorful and more uh, like, you know, clean and engaged with the characters as opposed to just kind of, you know forming some sort of traditional or, or preconceived yeah. notions. So, um, but leaning into the idea of kind of how TV is transitioning and, and the changes of it all, um, could you guys talk a little bit about what you've seen in the last 10 or 20 years? Like, have you noticed that, you know, just at the Cheers panel and even, even when Ted and Mary were talking yesterday, they talked about how they've noticed as actors that, you know, audiences are expecting so much more from TV in terms of how it looks, in terms of, like, the presentation of it. And, you know, people will call it cinematic or people will call it film-like and, and those kind of terms. 
But, you know, on your end, I, I imagine, you know, the expectations are higher, like they have increased in some way, or they're asking you to do different things, or, you know, on the, on the more positive end, asking you to experiment and, and get to do some of the stuff that's more exciting to you. Have you noticed that, like, as you've kind of grown, and, and what's that been like for you uh, to, to be able to embrace that? Yeah, I think it mostly depends on what network, who the director is, who the actors are, and all that. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I noticed the last show I did was a big show. It was uh, Apple show, great actors. Uh, the, they want to do everything cinematic, very artistic. And with that comes, you know, how I interpret that is great big wide shots. And we did a lot of huge shots. You'd be in here, you just do all these wide shots and you look at the person, they're this small. I mean, they're that, that wide a shot. And they were beautiful. But because of that, I had I could really light stuff well, do stuff well, make it look really rich. And that particular show, we did it because the costumes were so beautiful on these ladies that we weren't cutting them off. We never would shoot. We might do a close-up occasionally, but we wanted to see what they're wearing and see their environment. And uh, that was really special for me because it wasn't the typical wide shot, medium shot, walk up to the mark, stop, talk, cover it, move on. You know, we, we really thought about a lot of this. But to get back to your question, I, what I've seen is they want that, a lot of people want that, but they want to give you less time to do it. That's, that was the follow-up, yeah. That is, well, you just got to keep fighting that because you may have, you know, I remember on the, uh, I did the newsroom, and the newsroom, we would have, I swear to God, it must have been 14 pages in a day. <laughs> Literally, you know, but the way we covered it was like Friday Night Lights, I had three cameras, but the actors would have to remember five pages of dialogue, you know, just crazy, like uh, Jeff Daniels. I talked to him in the morning, he's fresh. Oh yeah, I played guitar all last night. And then, he's, and then at the end of the day, he'd be like, don't talk to me. Because he, <laughs> he had to remember five, six pages of really intense dialogue. And the way they played it, they, were not, they did not want to stop and cut. You cut everything as much as you could. So we'd have all this coverage where cameras are moving to do a wide, want to get tighter, move over here for a tighter angle here. So it was really a nice dance. It's you know, uh, uh, dancing with the actors and making it work in one or two setups, which is phenomenal. As opposed to when you get on, I meant to just say it, network shows and stuff like that, they still want to do something big, but they just can't seem to let you do it. So that's been my experience, but. Yeah, I think they want it to look completely different, completely cool, cinematic, but then they don't really give you the time. They just keep adding more pages, more locations, whatever it may be. So it's, it's a juggling act. But, you know, when you can get it with people that want to do it and are driven to do it, it's spectacular. Well, what about just the time element of, like, again, like, from my end with the newsroom, a lot of what I hear with Sorkin from himself is that he turns in those pages late. Like, he's doing revisions a lot to, like, the dialogue and everything like that that's time and that's TV time like where you have to turn that around to get the episode done does that affect you know what you're trying to do like is that another kind of you know I wish you guys would be able to give me more time to plan this out and you just have to work with it and does that happen often where you just don't have the literal time of production to get it done I would say if you a person like Sorkin they're going to give him whatever they wanted so the producers may say still say hey we need you to finish in a certain amount of time but they, you know he's on his own clock and um, I'll just say one quick story about that it was I got to watch all the rehearsals because he would go to his office, right, come to set only when we rehearse in the big scenes. And 
everybody would just read it, and I'd watch him laugh when he heard his words, and it was just so cool to watch. I was like, man, this is amazing. And then sometimes you'd see a new, an actor who was like a guest. And they'd go, well, Aaron, I wonder about this line. And everybody would be like, it was like E.F. Hutton. And everybody would just kind of like, oh, what's he going to say? And then uh, Aaron would just go, no, I like it the way I did it. You know, so you just keep going on. But it was really special to watch that because he was so prolific and he knew what he wanted in his head. But yeah, no, it, it does. It's, uh, as Abe will probably tell you, it's, uh, it's a challenge because you only got a certain amount of time in the day, but they want more and more. Or it's just somebody's not feeling well. We had on the last show, somebody would always be late. So that already cuts into four hours of your day. So there's already so many of these elements that come into this situation that you got to navigate and then make work out and then uh, try to get it done. At, at the same time, our industry is going, going through some changes with the, you know, the, the VR, the wall, the video wall. And the, uh, so there's also a new workflow pattern being set with, you know, just learning that process. Not even learning. We're doing it. I'm already doing it. We're already working with wall work. Every show I have the LED walls and... Uh, but now with the next generation, I think with the Gen Zs, they're going to be, you know, the Minecraft generation. I think they're going to be, actors will be like scanning their faces and then like, I'll loan this out, I'll rent this out to you for make me look younger. And so I'm actually really doing testing even now with uh, mapping, doing skins, and my, uh, me and my kid. Uh, so he'll, he'll make a, uh, go into Blender and just skin the body and just have them go to different locations. So the, we have like a lot that's gonna be happening. I think like stunts, you'll be able to move faster hopefully with stunts. You can just put the actor's face, skin, skin the double. I think that's coming. I, you know, I think actors are, I think that the next generation of actors are gonna have to face that issue because my kids are already doing it. Uh, and they're, and they're, 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 they're doing that reality, you know, the, 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 with the screen and making it and putting himself anywhere in the world. So I feel like we're trying to, we're asked to do so much in sh such a short period of time, but then we're having this big technology coming out as well that's going to determine the workflow. So you have to really set these boundaries to have time. You don't rush it and make mistakes because the costs are very big. We're having like these big meetings, even Netflix. We have this entire phone calls that are long talking about the wall and what the do's and don'ts. And, you know, it's like, you know, we're stepping out, but at the same time, we're, you know, for me, coming from a place, and I'm sure you would say the same, like the, the best is to find what is truthful in the scene. So for me, lighting is truthful. So once you start getting to more video wall and more, you know, not real set or set extensions, it breaks that truthfulness. And I really, really practice on trying to make everything as truthful as possible. Even if it's a heightened reality or magical realism or whatever your show might be, a musical. If any of you guys out there, let's do a musical. Uh, I love music and dance. Um, but, but at the same time, it's, every, it's changing so fast. You can, just cannot take a break. It was like film. Oh, here comes digital. Here, you know, it's like it, it's it's changing. So you got to really stay on top of things while you're doing a show as well. Like things get thrown at you, and, and you really have to figure it out. And and the onus is really on you guys to do that, right? Like you have to, you know, whether it's it's figuring it out because on the job they've come up with the idea, and you know you need to learn this to execute it, or you know between shows when you know this technology is out there and people are going to be asking for it, you guys have to do that, right? Like you guys have to just kind of take it upon yourselves to figure out how to get that done? Or do you have like studios and people helping? And, and Well, I think you try to help them out. And w one thing I was going to add is what I've seen on a lot of shows lately, um, because of the time element and all the things that come up, 
there's been a lot of um, throwing things to visual effects later. Uh, I was on a show where there's a lot of driving, and they didn't want to do it practical. They want to do everything green screen. And I think for everybody out here who, who writes stuff and wants to direct, you just have to be prepared because you can't throw everything onto visual effects because there was a show, we, it's still, there's still, there, there's so many visual effects that they threw on during production, they can't get them all done, they're too expensive. So they're cutting scenes and the time. So you, they say, oh, we're gonna air this in July. Well, visual effects aren't gonna finish till October, November if they want everything. So I think the point being, I feel part of my responsibility is to say, listen, let's just do this now so you don't have to deal with visual effects later. And they go, oh no, it's gonna be easy. And everybody says, oh, they can do it on iPhones now. <laughs> yeah, great. Well, that's a thousand shots on iPhones. It's still gonna take a long time. Right. So I feel my responsibility is to say, no, I think this particular scene, it's two pages. Let's get on an insert car. Everybody hates it. Let's shoot it. You've got it in the can. You don't have to worry about it. coming back to it. And they always relent to that because it makes the most sense. And as frustrating as it is to you know, do that kind of work, at least they get it done. So I've noticed that in a lot of shows. And it's just everybody keeps throwing it on to visual effects. And everybody agrees with it. And then they go to do the visual effects. They can't do them all. It's too expensive or they got too many. So I, I've seen that happen recently. Um, well, I want to make time for, for everybody to have questions, so please, if you've got them, start thinking of them. I'm going to get right to it. Um, but the last thing I wanted to ask was basically just, you know, we didn't, have, we didn't even get into, like, post-production or, or anything like that. And when it comes to your job, I feel like a lot of people, when they hear DP, they just think, okay, this is just the person kind of holding the camera. So I wanted to just ask, you know, what are the elements of the job that you wish people would recognize more, like, would, that you wish more people would kind of pay attention to and be like, you know what, this was something that I contributed, this was something that I brought to the project, this is part of it that I have to deal with, you know, day in and day out that, you know, people may not recognize. Is there anything that kind of stands out to you guys in terms of the, the work itself that, you know, people may not be aware of? Yeah. <laughs> Too much to, to narrow no, it down? No, it's not. It, it, it's, um, the, the DP job is, you know, I, I think I told Abe this the other night we were just talking, I said, you know, I've never read a good article or a book on moving up from camera operator to director of photography or cinematographer. Because it's such a huge change. When you're a camera operator, you're out your camera, you deal with the actors, your crew, and all this. When you move up to a DP, now you're dealing with costumes, producers, line producers, sound. You're dealing with everybody. Because they're all coming to you with their questions that they may not have answers for from somebody else. So you get thrown into that particular managerial role, which is fine, but sometimes that takes away from what you really want to concentrate on doing is shooting good stuff and making it look great for every shot. So I get a lot of that. I mean, even if somebody comes, oh, you're, you're, you know, your grip over here is acting like an idiot today. I was like, well, I can't, I can't you know, that's on him. But, you know, that's, I can't tell, I can go up and say, hey, listen, man, they're coming down on you and just, you know, wise up. But, um, you know, the point is that you're taking care of the family then now. I think, and uh, I'm okay with that, but there's certain things I can't do, and if it gets too much because there's so little information from producers or uh, you know everybody that they just don't know what's going on, then I get all these kind of questions, and that's the toughest part of the job is it turns into that, you know, budgets. You're, now you're dealing with budgets, and you never had to deal with budgets before, so. Yeah, yeah, doing DP work is way more than photography. It is so, so crazy in every direction because you mentioned time before you have like maybe 12 hours a day. I did four seasons of television uh, and we did 10 hour days. Uh, and I was proud that we did it. We really did 10 hour days and now the pandemic's over, we're back to normal. But, um, 
But a way I inch, sucked in that time is uh, my process. I built in, I take the sides, I print them up, I go over, I do really deep dive on the sides every single day. I break it down and I just find out these are the core pieces of the scene. Because when you start running out of time, you have to make choices. So I want to make sure my director's protected, at least with the photography part and the showrunner's protected. If I, oh, we missed an insert because I don't want to go backwards. So I take an insert. So just to take, just take 15 minutes of time, that's a lot of money. I mean, it could be like 15 grand, you know, if it's a thousand bucks a minute. So I really, really have to take it upon myself to read the sides. But in the day, it's true. There's just so many personalities and a lot of pressure. So when you, when you have time pressure constraints on everybody, it causes tension between departments. So I end up finding myself like reading, reading like quotes in the morning. Like I'll, before I do my sides, I'll read a, like depending where I am in the season, maybe I read Monet if it's a good day. Uh, but then maybe I'm reading Coach Jackson, you know, like or, or boxing quotes, or I do a lot of, or dance choreography quotes. It depends where I'm at, but most of the time it's like, how do you deal with narcissism or like, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> like this psychology things. And you're like, what are the traits of, um, but, but mostly, but mostly I, tr my approach, you know, coming from Texas and sports and, and really, you know, from that really like, you know, you gotta do two a days, you gotta like uh, work out. And I, I really learned a lot about leadership is like the number one thing that they don't like to, you can go up and know how to build cameras and do these things, but to have leadership and how to say things and really encourage people and and that is that is a skill set. Like today, I want to go learn about leadership or about what you know different coaches deal with these different egos with, with certain basketball players. Because this is what you're dealing with a lot of high profile uh, personalities, and which is great. Everyone, I will say this: everyone wants to do what's 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 best for the show. And it's just a matter of time. It's really time is the enemy, you know, much, much like poverty is the, the enemy and the things and situations that people do. So it's really how to, to do that. And I feel like that's a, something that goes unrecognized, I think, even in film schools to teach leadership and to teach these things, to, how, how to strengthen that muscle where it's second nature. Because I will be romantic with the 35 mil, no problem. But when it comes to having a deal, how to get to that place where we do the scene, where I have enough time for the director and, and the actors and these things. But you got to get there painstakingly going through a ton of uh, movement with calling transportation and wardrobe and there's a lot of moving pieces because I still see photography for what we do is directing photography and cinematography is like not only what's in focus but also what's out of focus. What are people wearing? What color is the wall? I talk paint with production design. There's so many conversations that go on and, and what, if you, what if you there's a bad place when you first meet someone and how is that relationship strained and how do you overcome that and how do you have this trust building? So th th those are the skill sets. It's like, I have a box of lenses, then I have the, the way to deal with different emotions with different people. <laughs> That's a fantastic answer. Thank you so much for that. Um, all right, guys, I'm going to the audience. What do we got? Uh, yeah, right here. Yeah, well, you come from a feature background or done features before, and there you pretty much know the, the size of your canvas and your palette. But with television, you know, people watch shows on, on little tiny screens as well as bigger screens and think, oh, I want a brighter picture, but I like my colors warmer. How do they change or uh, affect what you do when you find this? When you have no clue how people are going to be consuming your artistic well, I, for me, I think you just got to shoot it the way you'd shoot it, however it's going to get presented. If it's going to be on the big screen or the small screen, you just take that same approach and 
tell the story the way it needs to be told visually and let everybody else figure it out. I mean, it's, you know, we were talking about the Netflix. I did a Netflix jobs years ago when they just started coming out with HDR and all this new technology. And I just would see these guys and they're great people, but they were techies, man. They would be like, oh, you, you can't shoot it this way. You can't do that. You have to have this aspect ratio. It's gotta be this way. It was like, whoa, you know, I mean, great for you guys, but you know, I'm still gonna shoot it the way I know how to shoot it. So, you know, th that's how I kind of address that. Because uh, it's all, everybody wants it to be beautiful, cinematic, makes sense and engaging and emotional. Whether you get that on a large screen or a small screen, you still gotta take that approach. That's my thought. Yeah, I'm the same. I'm just kinda have my process of thinking like it's still gonna be big screen. And, but I do, there are some technical things I have to be aware of uh, for the final output for the phones. But I think that, yeah, you're right. There was a very much a hurdle when I was first doing it, but now I've come to accept it. You know, people watching it on their phones. So, uh, but it doesn't affect the way I do things. I, I just try to be as honest uh, as I can with just, this is the frame. And, you know, if somebody's painting, they decide to have a vase in there or not. It's like the, this thing. So I just really stick, like, really for me, it's this. So that to me will, will tell a lot. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's, I do consider it, but I just keep the same process. Big 40-foot screen is what I think. And speaking of that, there's a funny little story. We did the, I think it was the first or second season of Friday Night Lights. And if you guys have seen that show, you know, it's a lot of handheld camera, a lot of, little bit of zooming. It's, it, it's moving around. So somebody had the great idea, hey, let's do a screening over at the IMAX over here at the... Uh, Oh, the whole cast and crew were in there. The first few minutes of it, people were like this. They couldn't watch it. It was so crazy, just nuts on that big screen that it made you sick. So everybody just kind of got up, went to the bar, and we all just talked about it. It was like, that was the worst mistake ever, you know? So to your point, yeah, you think about that sometimes. That's a good one. That's, that's scary. Uh, all right, let's go. Anybody else? Yeah, right here. It's weird because I feel like I'm like the reboot guy. I'm like national. <laughs> I was like, I love movies. And then all of a sudden I'm like, wait a second. I'm doing National Treasure. I'm doing, you know, Cobra Kai. And I'm like, uh, Lincoln Lawyer. I shot that. And uh, I'm just like, gosh, what's going on? I better make some different choices. Uh, no, I, I, I feel like I just go really to the core of, uh, for every single of those projects, I just still try to... Uh, you know, my dad was a biker, he's Latino, and like, oh, I can add something to this scene, you know? I can add something, you know, my mom, you know, came up, uh, had me very young, and ended up becoming a, a, an executive at makeup. You know, she, I knew about eyeliner, and I just knew about makeup in <laughs> middle school, because I grew up, my mom, uh, she worked away being an executive in, here, you know, in Dallas, and North Park Mall, and Neiman Marcus, and so, and then she's like, oh, they're having to sell. Here's some clothes. And then I started learning about wardrobe. And then my aunt did hair. So I think really looking at your backstory, like what are the gifts? And, you know, here I am, you know, a little eight-year-old sweeping hair in a salon because, you know, they had to babysit me. And I just learned about hair. And I see that culture. So I do try to apply a lot of things from my backstory to the visuals. So Queen of the South, for me, was a gateway that I was like, 
oh my gosh, a Latino show, I can add so much, uh, you know, with the, with, the, with the, some of the themes. Although I don't know anything about the cartel. Like, uh, <laughs> I feel like that's uh, something that gets added to Latino stories. Uh, but yeah, no, it's amazing. I've, I've done documentary, a lot of documentary work where I went into Colombia, deep, deep in Colombia, where we had to have a white flag and a priest in the boat because the cartel is so heavy there. And, uh, and I, the whole time I'm taking notes for my show and I'm sending messages to the production designer for Queen of the South, and then I will do the exact same thing on the, on the TV series for, that I learned in the documentary. You know, so there's still a lot more experiences I've done, like being chased by rhinos and stuff. I don't know when I can apply or what, how I can add to that story, but I too try to take all what I can, but Queen of the South is a, a special, very close to my heart because I could contribute in many ways. Yeah. Good question. Uh, yeah, right here in the front. Hey guys, thanks for so much for doing this. Um, I want to talk a little, you guys can talk a little bit about uh, committing to the edit. Uh, so I've heard from like some of my friends that work in camera where they're like, you have a ton of shots in one day, but like you have no time. So like, can you talk a little bit about that process of just like trying to get through pages when you have like a little bit of time? You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, you got to cover the scene in the way that's going to tell the scene the best. So, you know, maybe you just start simple and get a nice wide and then maybe a two shot or whatever, whatever the scene calls for. Um, I don't know how else you, you know, we're kind of editors in a way, but not really. That's obviously going off to somebody else and they'll kind of hopefully tell their story with it too. Um, so to get to your point, that's a good question. I think there's some directors that'll come in and they'll have a shot list. They just do it. They don't even know. They probably not even do half the shots, but they have to get their process going, you know. And that's good because sometimes you need that. But for the most part, when a scene gets blocked out, it tells you how you're going to shoot it anyway. In my eye, because they just the way they do it, you know what you need to get, and you may say, okay, we got this. Let's do a pass because the guy's tapping his hands or he's doing something, you know, some character thing that's really cool. Let's isolate that so the editor can maybe then put that in and keep it flowing and all that. So I think, uh, to answer your question, yeah, I think you just got to shoot it the way you're going to shoot it. And if there's something special in there that you can pick up at that time, do it. But um, the rest of it, you know, I think gets thrown down the line to the editor. Does that answer your question? Yeah, Kinda? yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I would say echo the yeah. same, yeah. Okay, cool. I think we got time for one more. Anybody? Yeah, let's go over here, right in the front. Uh, you all briefly mentioned, uh, I guess, some of the, upcoming technologies and, and things that are, are being used in the industry. Is there anything in particular that you all see that's either starting to be used or that you're hearing within the industry that you're excited that might make your jobs, um, that might open up more opportunities or, or make shooting just different versus what it is now? That's a good question. I think, Abe, you are really into the technology stuff of it. Yeah. Uh, well, I think I try to use tools for more than what it's intended for. So I feel like, you know, with the video wall, like I'm just breaking those things up and using them for lights and uh, you just really use, cause you just have to, you know, it's not like I can, I think more, I think what's happening now, I think the budgets are gonna get smaller. I think we went to this peak TV where I was having like crane, I would have a 30 foot crane every day and like <laughs> order like, there's a crane sitting there and it's like, uh, it got crazy for a second. Uh, but I really love just bringing it in and saying, how do I reuse this tool? I'm excited about the new cameras that are Alexa 35. And 
uh, the color science is really looking very, you know, very beautiful now, and I, I feel like that's great. Um, but but there are some things like I mentioned earlier about uh, skinning uh, uh, characters and risk taking, making things safer on set. I think to try to use that for just really fundamental stuff, keeping things safe, you know, with working with guns. And so I think that's the number one thing to try to make things safe and try to make the schedule. Um, but yeah, I think we're in an exciting time right now, for sure. I feel like this uh, Gen Z generation is, on, is like unbelievable what they're doing. And I, I, I see what he mentioned about cost for VFX. In my head, I'm like, my 14-year-old can do it. Like, of course we could. <laughs> but then your bucket fills up because then they're farming it out to Poland and everyone's getting overloaded and they charge you because they don't have time. But it really is cheap. They're, they're coming out with plugins very fast. He's putting fire on things and so fast and showing me and teaching me terms. So I'll, I'll talk to the, the, the VFX supervisor. Can't you just do this, 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 and that? And it's like, it's like you're seeing what's under the hood. So the, the next generation is going to be like, really, really great. So I think it's more of a generational excitement to see what they take, the tools that we have, and we hand it over to them. And um, I'm not saying AI, right? I'm just saying, because they are playing with that, but I feel like it's just going to breed a different type of uh, filmmaker, really. I think we're already seeing that with, uh, you know, with the whole gun thing. You, we can't have squibs on any sets anymore. So uh, in gunfire, so they just, hey, let's just put it in, put a flash in later, goes quick. They can do that fairly quickly. So we're seeing that, but if it costs more time, that's going to be an issue. All right, well, I want to send everybody out here on uh, a little bit of a recommendation. This is also a little bit selfish because I'm just curious what, uh, what you guys have seen that's really exciting right now. Is there anybody that you're watching, any shows that you've caught where you're just kind of like, you know, what they're doing visually, what they're doing with, with the image is, is something that I, you know, I'm really impressed by or I'm just, you know, I didn't think you could do or, or just something that kind of struck you as, as special. Uh, do you have anything like that on, the, on top of your head for everybody? Uh, nothing that's more, you know, I, uh, like the Mandalorian, I, that's great stuff, but the technology, is, I, I just see people staring at phones, figuring out how they're going to do it on set. But storytelling-wise, I saw a great show called Tehran. Uh, just the storytelling is amazing. It, the pace is amazing. It just hooks you in, and it's just wonderful uh, storytelling. So for me, that was something I saw recently that I really got into, because it wasn't so technical. It was just great storytelling. So that was very cool, I just love this stuff so much. I feel like I'm all over the place. Uh, uh, I mean, I like what A24 is doing right now on television. Um, I like uh, Severance, Beef. Um, so there's like so many great, great shows. Uh, I like the show I just did, Obliterated, which is like, it took almost everything I ever did from Fast and Furious to Spider-Man. It took like my entire career skill set to do this show called Obliterated, write it down, because it's, it was the hardest, but the funnest show I've ever worked. It was over the top. It was like Hangover beat SEAL Team. It was insane. And uh, every day it's like, what are we doing today? It's not climbing Mount Everest. It's like doing the most craziest stunt comedy thing you've seen ever. And it's very, very forward in today's culture and society, but it's very, it's a love letter to 80s action movies that had comedy. So it is so much fun. So I'm really excited for that show because what I experience, if people, if it takes a, a liking, it's going to be very funny and fun. And it just really feel, makes it feel like, I just, I just love the idea of just coming home from work and escaping. Even now, I'm all day looking at monitors, but I still come home and watch Severance or Ted Lasso. And I still love this stuff so much. And uh, yeah, no, so I think, yeah, I think we're going to continue on with awesome things, guys. It's like, it's really going to be fun out there.
Well, thank you so much for sharing your expertise. Thank you so much for coming out here. Uh, everybody enjoy the rest of the festival and, and you know, enjoy day four. Hey, can I say one last thing? I want to thank uh, James Finn from Panavision yes. oh, for yeah. sponsoring this. Thank Great you, James. Company. Thank you, As Panavision. You, you guys go out and write and produce and shoot stuff. Look up Panavision. They'll help you out. Thank you so much, everybody. Thanks, everybody. You have been listening to the TV Campfire Podcast, hosted by ATX TV co-founders Emily Gibson and Caitlin McFarland, and produced by Jennifer Morgan. This conversation was recorded live at ATX TV Festival Season 12 in Austin, Texas, between June 1st and 4th, 2023. For more information on the festival and becoming an ATX TV member, follow us at ATX Festival or visit ATXFestival.com.